Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gell, host of Open Your Eyes. Have you ever wondered why we make bad decisions? We eat, instead of eating one slice of pizza, we eat the whole pizza, or we're eating ice cream, and we, you know, we want to taste the ice cream, but we eat the whole tub of ice cream. Well, today we have an expert on why we make good decisions and bad decisions. I want to welcome Dr. Austin Perlmutter to the podcast today. He's a board-certified internal medicine physician. He received his medical degree at the University of Miami. He completed his internal medicine residency in Oregon Health and Science in Portland. His interests are in burnout, depression, preventative care, and chronic disease. And he's the co-author of this fantastic book called Brainwash. It's probably upside down, but uh, it's really a great book. He's a co-author with his dad, uh, who is is a a famous doctor, Dr. David Perlmutter. So i got to ask you, Austin, you know, I've read Grain Brain. I read a lot of your doctor's books, a lot of your father's books. He's a great storyteller. When you were a kid, did he tell you all these stories to <laughs> you're studying science and math to get you to learn? You know, he used to tell me all sorts of stories, but when I was a kid, they had nothing to do with science. Actually, let me clarify a little bit. He used to make up these amazing fantasy stories before we would go to sleep, and they're kind of science fiction based, but they were so entertaining. And so I guess he's always had a natural knack for storytelling. And You know, he's written a ton of books. Only more recently have people been um, listening to him on the global stage after the release of Grain Brain. But he's always been good at storytelling, whether that's fantasy stories to get me to go to sleep when I was a kid or taking the science and making it into a story that people could understand and then apply in their lives. He has these great sayings all the time when you hear him speak. uh, You know, he's quoting the Dalai Lama. Did he (laughs) do that with you when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I guess so. He's always been big into learning from whoever's around him and whoever he, he thinks is a big thinker in the world. So I do recall him quoting some people when I was younger. Um, again, he has always been dedicated to learning from his environment and trying to take the most important of that knowledge and bring it back to the family and to his patients and to the people he spends time with. You know, it's funny, my 10-year-old plays baseball and he reminded me, I said, that's Dr. Perlmutter. He comes back to me the other day and he goes, you know, he's practicing his hitting. And he said, Bruce Lee said, he goes, I fear the man who practices the same kick 10,000 times than the man who practices 10,000 different kicks. And I said, that's Dr. Perlmutter. You know, he has all these great sayings. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me, Are we brainwashed in this country? Yeah, well, let me back up for just a moment and talk about why we called our book Brainwash. Obviously, it brings up the connotation of a negative idea that we've been brainwashed, manipulated. I think that is true. I think that our our way of seeing the world, our decisions have been manipulated by certain entities that prefer to have us making poor choices. But why we named the book Brainwash is because we believe now is the time to wash our brains in a positive way in order to reclaim our thinking by literally building a better brain that enables us to make better decisions. 
So what, so what does brainwash actually mean? Yeah, well, what we want brainwash to mean, as we use the two words brainwash in the book, is that you are able to wash your brain of this kind of toxic environment and toxic influences that damage our thinking and kind of wash it clean and instead build up a brain that is helpful to you. You know, we, we kind of reference many ways that the reader is able to do this brain washing in a positive way throughout the book. One of the most concrete ways of doing this, and actually an area that's been quite fascinating, is the research into the glymphatic system in the brain, which is literally a washing system that is more active at night, that clears away metabolic debris from the brain. So that's a physical way that a person can activate a brainwash system to clean out the gunk and start thinking clearer. You know, not to go down a rabbit hole, but if we talk about cleaning out your brain, the glymphatic system, and detoxification, what are some of your favorite ways to detox? Is it infrared sauna? Is it green mm. juices? Well, I think that the word detox in the modern lexicon has kind of become um, dyssynchronous from the way it was originally intended. Detoxification in a medical sense generally has to do with liver detoxification pathways that break down environmental toxins and keep you from developing toxicity. Um, in the modern day, we use the word detox a little bit more generously. So we talk about detoxing with a juice cleanse or we talk about a digital detox. I think that's all fine, but I think we have to try to be specific about what it means inside the body. So as it relates to this more general idea of trying to clean up our system, trying to clean up our thinking, trying to clean up our health, you know, I'm not a huge fan of doing things in an unhealthy way and then trying to press the reset button occasionally by taking a whole bunch of supplements or jumping in uh, some red light or in a sauna. I think what's more important is to try to use natural ways of detoxification. What that means is trying to, in general, use foods or eat foods, eat phytochemicals that promote the detoxification systems in the body. And the way that we do that is by eating a, a diet that has a diverse range of these phytonutrients, phytochemicals, specifically, and again, nothing that you don't know, but eating green leafy vegetables, eating vegetables with a variety of colors. That's the way that you support this for the long run, as opposed to trying to fix everything overnight. All right, we talk, you brought up uh, diet. There's many, many different types of diet. Yes, there are. What do you What do you think is probably the best way, and uh, the best way or the healthiest way to eat? Or how do you eat? Yeah, well, anybody who's listening in probably knows about the diet wars. There are people out there advocating for a carnivore diet. There are people out there advocating for a vegan diet. There are keto people. There are paleo people. There are people who are everywhere along that spectrum. And for the most part, it seems like these people are arguing for their unique perspective at the um, expense of looking at what other people are doing. So th the other important piece to know here is it's probably not the case that there's this one diet that's absolutely perfect for everyone. There may be some people who respond very well to a ketogenic diet. Those would be seeming to be people who have insulin resistance and people who are maybe trying to get on a, a healthier weight loss plan initially and to improve their insulin sensitivity. But it doesn't mean that the ketogenic diet is perfect for everyone. Um, similarly, the vegetarian or even vegan diet may work well for certain people, but then you have to be careful about levels of micronutrients. You have to be careful about vitamin levels. 
So what I try to do and try to advocate for is a generally balanced diet, which is primarily plant-based with the inclusion of the highest anti-inflammatory content, animal-based foods. Um, the diet that we recommend in Brainwash is actually the diet that I follow, and it's a diet that recommends interventions to lower inflammation and interventions, so both removing the inflammatory components of the diet and then adding in anti-inflammatory components. Um, one thing that I think we can all kind of agree on is that the modern American diet or the standard American diet is fraught with added sugar. So there's actually research from UNC suggesting that about 68% of the 1.2 million foods that they studied in the American food chain contain added sugars and sweeteners. There's really no one out there who's saying we need to eat more sugar. Um, basically, everyone's on the same page, with the exception maybe of the sugar industry, in advocating for less added sugar in our diet. So that's actually in a wonderful place for the, the average person to make some amazing changes to their diet to cut out something that is literally poison. It is causing inflammation. It is contributing to these rates of chronic diseases. That means looking at the back of the nutrition information or the nutrition facts and seeing whether there's added sugar, seeing where sugar is sneaking into your meal. So that's something that I do personally with everything that I consume is try to find out where there's added sugar. The other part of it, which is perhaps a little bit more technical is, as I said, trying to consume foods that are anti-inflammatory. In general, what that means is in the three kind of major macro categories, when it comes to carbohydrates, you want to eat less refined carbohydrates and more fiber. So more natural carbohydrates that are whole vegetables, whole plant-based foods. When it comes to the protein-based category, that means trying to do what you can to maximize anti-inflammatory animal proteins if you choose to eat those, which include primarily the omega-3 rich fish, as well as if you eat plant-based proteins, those tend to have a bit of an anti-inflammatory profile as well, provided they haven't been stripped down um, as I said, with the refined carbohydrates. carbohydrates. The last thing would be when it comes to the fat-based profile. As I said, you want to be eating the um, high uh, omega-3 rich fish for fats. That's a really healthy fat. But also, you want to be eating the plant-based fats that are good for us, the polyunsaturated, the monounsaturated fats. And those would be things that you find in avocados and nuts and olive oil. What other lifestyle factors can we do to decrease inflammation? Sure. Well, I think, again, learning about how you can lower inflammation with nutrition is a big step, but there are so many other things we can do. Exercising in moderate amounts has been shown to lower inflammation. Um, if you do it really, if, if you, for example, are an ultra marathoner, that may not be the case, but for the average person, getting up and moving around is a wonderful way to lower inflammation in the body. There is a strong association with getting more sleep and lower inflammation in the body. So it may very well be that Getting a bit more sleep may be a way to lower inflammation. Stress reduction interventions are also correlated with lower levels of inflammation. That means mindfulness practice. That means perhaps meditation. And then as we describe in the book, there's actually a lot of research coming out about how nature exposure can act as an anti-inflammatory. Just getting out into the woods for a little bit, bringing some plants inside your home, or even having some photographs of nature in your home, office, kitchen, these are ways that we can help to lower inflammation that don't really take too much as far as a financial investment or a time investment. So you talked about meditation. What are some ways, you know, meditation to a lot of people is this magical 
thing that nobody kind of understands very well. In fact, even in my field, you can lower intraocular pressure for a glaucoma patient. We're not going to take them off their glaucoma medicine, but we can lower their intraocular pressure, their eye pressure with meditation. What are some good ways, some quick ways you could teach some of the people watching this on how they, if they have a few minutes, they could just do a quick meditation? Sure. I think that there is some, um, I don't want to say concern, but maybe a little bit of pushback against meditation because it's seen as kind of this esoteric, strange practice. And as it turns out, it can be very straightforward. And one of the easiest ways to incorporate a meditation or a mindfulness practice in your day is just to pay attention to your breathing. So you practice deep breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth, and just pay attention to that. It could even be a couple of these deep breaths, but it's the reason that we like meditation and mindfulness practices so much is that they lower levels of stress, they lower levels of inflammation, but also they just kind of allow you to have a bit more insight into the way that your brain is working. And I know for me, I try to meditate 20 minutes in the morning. And what that means is nothing too complicated. I just sit somewhere, close my eyes and try to focus on my breathing. Nothing too crazy about it. Um, but it gives me insight into the way that my brain is working. And it kind of gives me uh, almost this metric for how the day is going to go and allows me to then customize what I do based on that meditation. So if you are somebody who hasn't tried meditating before, who is maybe a little bit wary of how this is all gonna go, I'd say it doesn't take much. You could pay attention to your breath for a minute or two, and that is a phenomenal place to start. There are all sorts of different types of meditation and mindfulness practice. Some people like to use walking meditation mindfulness practice, which basically just means as you're walking, paying attention to how the air feels when it's going past your face, when it's going past your arms. These are all wonderful ways to, as we described in the book, activate the part of your brain that enables you to make better choices and calm down the part of your brain that keeps you angry, aggressive, impulsive. We talk about exercise. We know in the eye field, exercise decreases the risk of macular degeneration. So talk about, and, but over-exercising isn't good. I've seen patients who over-exercise, they're big bodybuilders. In fact, I had a friend who was a big bodybuilder who died in his late 40s from bodybuilding. Why is over-exercising bad and just exercising the right amount good? I think like anything, there are always extremes. And so probably not exercising at all is no good. And probably exercising to the point where you have no reserve isn't super healthy either. Now, with that said, there's obviously some individual variability as far as what the level of exercise that's going to be perfect for you. Um, so if I have a patient coming in who hasn't moved much off the couch in a few years, the last thing I'm going to recommend is that they start running a marathon. With that said, if you're a young person and you're looking after yourself, running a marathon might be a great thing. Um, you know, I think, as I said before, we, we've got to worry a little bit about the extremes because what we want is to set ourselves up for a lifetime of success. And so much in the modern world is threatening to lock us into more short-term thinking. Um, while that can sometimes lead to short-term results that seem appealing, in the long run, that can be damaging. So whether that's over-exercising, overeating, over-indulgence in uh, digital media, it's, it's worth pausing occasionally and asking how much benefit we're getting out of this and whether it's worth whatever costs are involved. 
Now we talked about oxidative stress, inflammation, inflammation being the core component to chronic disease. People are confused. What's the difference between inflammation and oxidative stress? Do they go together? Yeah, so it turns out oxidative stress and inflammation are really complicated topics to fully grasp. But I think that anyone listening can get a basic understanding of these two things, which are different, and have a, a good concept of how to move forward with these terms. So let's start with inflammation. Inflammation is a very popular topic these days. You hear about it in podcasts like this one. You hear about it in books like mine. You hear about it in medical journals. What is inflammation? Well, the basic idea of inflammation is it's an inflammatory response to a threat in the body. Um, and by inflammatory, I should say an immune-based response to a threat in the body. So a good example of this would be if you're bitten by a mosquito, um, that part of the body, that hand where you get bitten, there's going to be an immune response and it's going to send blood cells there to uh, start dealing with this perceived threat from the environment and you're going to have redness, you're going to have swelling, you're going to have pain, you're going to have warmth. And these are kind of the cardinal symptoms of acute inflammation. Now that may actually be a great thing, because if you consider, let's say you got cut on your hand, you want inflammation or this immune response to a threat to occur because you need to fight off the pathogens, the bacteria. The issue that people are concerned about is that when inflammation becomes chronic, when it occurs over weeks, months, years, then it seems to be associated with the increased risk for developing a variety of conditions, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's. And that's why we try to look into interventions to lower chronic inflammation. Okay, so to recap, inflammation is an acute response to an immune response to a threat perceived by the body. When it becomes chronic, that's where we have issues. So then what is oxidative stress? Well, in the body, there are constantly reactions occurring. And these reactions, one of these reactions is an oxidation reduction reaction. And this occurs primarily in the mitochondria. It's how we generate energy. In the process of this and in other parts of the body, for example, the skin, when our skin cells are hit by sunlight, we form these reactive species, or I should say these free radicals. Now, free radicals have an unpaired electron. <laughs> I know this is getting technical, but oh, free, free radicals are, are molecules, they're atoms with an unpaired electron. That unpaired electron makes them very reactive. And this reaction can trigger a chain reaction in cells. It can trigger a chain reaction in our fats, in our proteins, in our DNA, causing damage. Now, this damage can then lead to inflammation. But the reason that we're worried about oxidative stress is when there's an imbalance of these oxidative products and antioxidants that seems to cause damage to the body over time. Again, this can lead to inflammation, just like inflammation can occur with this oxidative stress. So these things are, are closely related, but they are slightly dissimilar. Our goal in general is to have a balance so we don't undertake oxidative stress and instead our oxidation is offset by antioxidation. Um, similarly, having some inflammation in our body is a good thing, but we don't want that to proceed unchecked. So we want a balance between inflammation and anti-inflammatory um, states of our body. So we talk about oxidative stress, it's almost like a rusting in a way. Yeah, this is a way that a lot of people look at this. Um, you know, 
depending on the source that you look at, oxidative stress, free radicals, oxidative damage will be described in slightly different ways. But oxidation is one of these two critical reactions in our body, the other being reduction. So you have some things that are oxidized, other things that are reduced. And what we're really talking about there is a flow of electrons, of hydrogens, of bonds within molecules, within atoms. Oxidation, though, is what you see when you look at rusting of a piece of metal that's been left out. That is oxidation because that process has been occurring, which leads to the, uh, the rust that you see. So people have said you don't want that happening in the body. Now, it is a little bit more complicated than that because you need oxidation. What you don't want is an imbalance where there isn't the offsetting of uh, this antioxidation. Thank you for that. Now, in your book, you write about digital devices. You know, we all, no matter who you are, you're living with a digital device. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> you know, the, how do we control it instead of making the digital devices control us? Well, this is a great question. The question is, how do we benefit from our digital technology in such a way that we're not uh, coming out with all of these losses? How do we use our technology so that it isn't using us? And for this book, Brainwash, that I wrote with my father, we developed this acronym called the Test of Time, T-I-M-E. This is something that we believe we can all apply when we go into our digital environment. It stands for T, time restricted, because you want to make sure that when you're going into one of these digital worlds, you're not losing hours and hours of your day. So it's as straightforward as setting a timer for, let's say, 30 minutes for a TV show or maybe 10 minutes for social media. When that timer goes off, that's your cue that it's enough. It's time to do something else. I is for intentional. That means that you want to be intentional about what you're trying to get out of these technologies. It's very different going online, let's say on social media, to check in and see how your cousin is doing because maybe they've been having a rough time. That is, you have purpose, you have an intention as opposed to what a lot of us wind up doing, which is we enter social media because we are waiting for the subway or because we're in the back of an Uber. And the next thing we know, we spent 30 minutes just kind of scrolling through without any real intention. M is for mindful, which means that we need to be mindful of how our technologies are affecting us, both before, during, and afterwards. As an example, imagine you're watching the news, and we all think we need to watch the news in order to stay informed. That may be the case, but a lot of people come out of watching the news feeling quite stressed, quite anxious, perhaps angry about maybe what the opposing political party is doing. And I think it's important that we're mindful of these effects while we're being exposed to the news, because as much as it might be important for a person to be informed, it's also key that we understand there are negative consequences when we're experiencing that type of stress. And then E, perhaps the most important of this acronym, is for enriching. By enriching, I mean that we want to make sure that our technology is adding, it's giving us a net positive, a net benefit. And so the way that I apply the enriching part of the acronym is I wait until after I've finished using my technology, whether that's watching TV, scrolling through my phone, emails, or even going on my computer, and I ask, was this activity a net positive? And I think listeners will know when the case is no. I think they'll know after they maybe binge watch TV or binge use social media when they've kind of felt like they, they didn't gain that much from it. 
So at that point, that's the moment to say, let me reframe the way I approach my digital technology. Next time I engage with my computer, my TV, my phone, I want to go through that time acronym and maybe lower the amount of time I spend, maybe ensure I'm a little bit more intentional, maybe try to apply more mindful techniques. You know, my 10-year-old son wanted me to ask you this question. Video games. My 10-year-old son, his friends, the, the parents. This is a big fight between kids and parents. And how much video games should they be allowed to play? Is it hurting them? Is it helping yeah. them? Is there any benefit to it? Or is it always, is it pretty much all net, net not benefit? Uh, so the answer is 32 minutes and 30 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's, this is a tough question. And... There are people in both camps here. Some people who will say that using these video games is a wonderful way to develop certain types of, uh, let's say, hand-eye coordination and faster reactions. Um, other people who will say this is really damaging to our youth because they're not only being exposed to these violent video games, but they're not getting out and participating in real-world interactions. Now, I would say, having looked at the science in this realm, there are certainly studies that will show um, negative consequences of using video games, these violent video games, and for using them for hours and hours a day. But I think this is a microcosm of the larger picture, which is what is our exposure to digital technology doing to our brains, doing to our mood? And one reason I think it's very hard to answer this question is there's a big variability in how we're using our digital technology. Now, we're using digital technology in this very moment to be able to video conference across the country. Is this the same thing as scrolling through social media and comparing ourselves to unrealistic beauty standards? No, it isn't. So we're still at an early stage in understanding how technology changes the brain, changes our mood. There's definitely research suggesting that when we passively use our social media, for example, that is associated with lower well-being. But when we're actively using it, which means when we're trying to have a conversation with other people, when we're participating in it, then it's actually associated with higher levels of well-being. So let's come back to your original question, which is, what do we do about video games? I would say at this stage, we're not 100% sure what are the long-term consequences of spending hours and hours a day on our screens. We do know that there is an upsurge in what's called internet addiction, which has been cited at about potentially 6% of the global population who is experiencing addiction, um, meaning they're having negative consequences of things like using video games. But is that then something we can generalize and say, well, maybe there is a certain population that has real issues, perhaps with some underlying uh, predisposition in their neurochemistry that makes it more likely for them to have issues with anything, or is it that the actual technology is causing that? Again, we're not quite sure yet. We also have research showing that people who use social media excessively show changes in a part of their brain called the corpus callosum, that the, um, the diffusion or the kind of the structural integrity of the corpus callosum in people who overuse social media is less, suggesting maybe there is a consequence of it. But what I would tell people is we know something pretty clearly, and that is there is a certain benefit from doing things besides being online, from doing things besides watching TV and being on our phones. For example, if we're spending four hours a day, which the average American adult spends watching TV, those are four hours we could otherwise be spending exercising, preparing healthy food, spending time with people we care about, getting out into nature. And these are things that are associated with positive health outcomes, both for our general well-being, our mental health, 
and even things like lower levels of inflammation, lower levels of stress, improved immune function. So even if our technology is completely neutral, it's largely mindless the way that we're approaching this. And if you're spending a third of your waking hours engaging in mindless media, that is time that could very likely be spent more productively doing other things. You know, people aren't going outside and shopping. They're not going to the mall. They're buying things online. They're living their, they're living their life inside. What can we do about that? Well, I will say I use Amazon. It is incredibly convenient. And the reason that we're using these technologies to make our lives easier is exactly that. It makes our lives easier. It is so much more straightforward to order your food um, these days with an app. And that means you don't have to go to the store. You don't have to sit down. But you know the, the challenge is, because it is so easy, we then don't invest in the more meaningful stuff. As I was saying with technology um, before, if we're spending all of our time indoors watching TV, if we're spending all of our time indoors ordering food, ordering products, and not going out and interfacing with the world, those are missed opportunities. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of different strategies that people have used to kind of get themselves outside of this habit. But I would say the, the two major things that I would recommend to people is one, ask yourself, how do you feel like you're doing um, with regard to your well being? If you feel like your well being is really good, if you don't have any concerns for your mental health, for your physical health, then maybe you don't need to make changes. But two is if you feel like there's something that you need to change, then it's worth looking into the changes that you can make. And if you're in that second camp, what you can do is, again, it's kind of twofold strategy. First is understand how your choices are being manipulated, how you make decisions. And then part two is understand how you can take control over this decision-making architecture so that you make better choices. Um, something I say a lot is, if you're not taking control of your decisions, if you're not making your own choices, other people will make them for you. And unfortunately, you're probably not gonna like the outcomes of this. So it's come to the point where, yes, modern world has made it incredibly easy to do everything from find a date on a dating app to ordering food on a food app to, um, as we said before, have entertainment for the entire day in your pocket. I'm not saying we have to reject that outright, but we do have to ask if we're willing to make changes. And the only way that a person's going to be willing to make changes is if they have the awareness that this isn't ideal for him or her. You know, we talked about addiction for uh, digital devices. You know, some people just have an addictive personality, no matter what they do, they can be addicted to good things and they could also be addicted to when they're doing bad things. And, and, and in your book, Brainwash, you talked about the Chinese adolescents, 16% of them are addicted to digital devices. That's pretty scary. Sure. Well, as I said before, we have several times the population of the UK already suffering from digital addiction, um, from internet addiction. And it seems like this percentage actually goes up dramatically in certain places. And as we said, over in Asia, there are pockets where this seems to be much higher. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something about people having a predisposition to addiction. And that does seem to be the case. There are um, certain protein expressions that seem to be correlated with developing addictive tendencies. There are certain abnormalities in dopamine receptors that potentially predict addictive tendencies. But the other major part of this problem is that our food, our technology, 
is being progressively designed to capitalize on our reward circuits, to capitalize on this dopaminergic habit-based system such that it makes it really hard for us to perform healthier behaviors. And, um, you know, there, this is being used for good and bad things. There are people out there like BJ Fogg who are teaching us about how we can wire our habits for better outcomes. Um, but if you're a company that is making a junk food or if you're a company that's making a social media app, you have every incentive possible to make that as sticky as you can, to make that screen as hard to put down as you can, to make it more likely that people will click that button and purchase the extras in your application will make it more likely that people drive by your store and continue to buy that refined carbohydrate unhealthy food each day. And you know the challenging part here is that the neuroscience has progressively gotten better over the last several decades, such that we've finally started to understand some of the circuitry that underlies these habit-based loops, these impulsive type loops, these quick fix loops. Um, but you know that's all fine. It just if that's only known to people who want to manipulate our choices to get us to make poor decisions, then it's actually a net negative. Um, so that's why I would say to people, now is the time to start understanding some of this stuff. You don't have to be a neuroscience expert, but you do need to understand the basic parts of the brain and how their activation changes what you choose so that you can start taking back your brain for good choices. Otherwise, again, other people are going to make your choices for you. You know, it, it seemed for a while people were addicted to bad food. The big agriculture food companies have very, very smart PhDs that know how to mix sugar and fat and, and salt together to make people addicted to that product. Now people are becoming not only addicted to bad food, they're becoming addicted to uh, digital technology, which isn't, and they're not getting out of their chair. It, it's actually very scary. I can see from patients myself how people are getting sicker. Yeah, and what you're kind of referencing here is that humans have a brain that was not recently developed. And by that, I mean, we've kind of had the same hardware in our brains for the last several hundred thousand years. Um, that hardware is programmed to preferentially engage in certain types of activities. One of those activities is eating sugary foods. And the reason for that is Sugary foods were the best way for us to stock up on calories back in the day when we were walking across the savanna, um, when calories weren't certain. Um, humans went towards sugary foods for the reason that it helped them bulk up for the winter, but also because sugary foods tend to be safe. So our programming teaches us to engage with and consume sugary foods. So if you are a company that is trying to create a product that causes people to continue to eat it, then adding sugar to it is a wonderful way to ensure you get more money. Now, on the other hand, um, I should say this other major hack we talk about in the book is humans are also programmed for social interaction. And again, looking at the evolutionary basis for this, we kind of needed other people to help us out and to let us know when a threat might be coming up behind us, whether that was a rival tribe or a saber-toothed cat we need other people to care for us, to help us to survive. And in the modern day, despite the fact that the population of the earth is approaching 8 billion people, we look at these studies that show that 
almost 50% of Americans feel lonely, some or all of the time. And so we are very disconnected from that need for social connection um, or from, I should say, fulfilling that need for social connection. So now enter social media, which promises to give us a taste of that. And you know, I remember the early days of Facebook where people would reach out and say, this is a, a wonderful way for us to stay in touch. People living across the country said, hey, we should just connect on Facebook, we send each other messages once in a while and let each other know what we're up to. But now you look at what happens when you engage with a social media platform. Um, you find that people are largely just yelling at other political parties, that people are incredibly polarized, and that it's setting up for these unrealistic comparisons because people preferentially post about the ideal version of their lives. You know, they're not posting their crying babies, they're posting their babies behaving perfectly. They're not posting the day-to-day -day drive to work, they're posting uh, that trip to Maui when they are sitting out on a beach. And they're not posting realistic pictures of their facial structure. They're posting these edited selfies that make them look even better than most people could ever hope to look. So why that's a problem is we start engaging with social media with the hope of connecting with other people because that's how we're programmed. We need, we, we respond to engagement with others. And then we wind up engaging in these tribalist behaviors or tribalism. And we also wind up comparing ourselves unrealistically to these kind of made up stories that other people are putting on there. What does that do? It causes us to experience stress. It causes us to experience anxiety. And these are things that preferentially engage the amygdala, which is a more aggressive, impulsive, um, fight or flight center of the brain. Now, what we describe in Brainwash is the way that we see the world is, is reflective of how our brains are activated. So if we're activating this amygdala, this more impulsive, aggressive, fight or flight part of the brain, that means that the way we see things is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be colored by these types of impulsive behaviors, by more fear, by more anxiety, as opposed to engaging the prefrontal cortex, which is a more recently evolved part of the brain that tends to be more engaged with future-oriented thinking cognitive empathy and balanced thought. So in a very real way, the way that we interface with the world, for example, with our digital technology, with our food, is going to determine how we see the world. It's going to change our brains, change the activation patterns in our brains, which will then shift the way that we physically perceive the world and the way that we perceive the world will then change our brains. It's a two directional loop here that we have to understand if we wanna start having better lives because this is the opportunity then to wire our brains for better lives. It just requires that we first understand this basic circuitry. It's like those cartoons, you got the good guy here, you got the bad, the amygdala is the bad guy, <laughs> and then the good guy is the prefrontal cortex. Uh, I know you kind of alluded to this, but for our audience, uh, things that shrink the prefrontal cortex and make us, and make us, make the amygdala, amygdala uh, take over and things that will increase the prefrontal cortex and have more, re become more reasonable. If you could just review that again, I know we've talked about that at the beginning, but maybe we could just review it so people understand it. Sure. Well, I want to make sure that listeners understand it's not as though this is a good and bad story. It is not as though the amygdala is a bad part of the brain. We need the amygdala. 
let me give you an example. The amygdala is like a alarm system for your brain. So if you are laying in bed and you hear the front door open at 2 a.m., um, you weren't expecting company, the amygdala will light up. It will tell you this may be a threat. This may be something we need to care about. And that'll get your cortisol levels up. That'll get your norepinephrine levels up. That'll make you ready to respond. Because you never know, that might be a burglar, in which case it's probably good to be activated a little bit. Now, with that said, imagine now this threat response system is incredibly sensitive. So it's not that the front door opens and it's a burglar, but it's a branch that is scratching across the window. Now, that might still trigger the same response, which wakes you up, gets you all stressed, gets you ready to fight or flee. Now, in this second case, not so helpful. So what we want is actually for the amygdala to be set at the right level. And how do we determine how that happens? Well, the prefrontal cortex, which we call kind of the adult in this equation, is able to exert what is called top-down control. And that enables the prefrontal cortex to calm down the amygdala. So the way I like to describe this is, the amygdala is the kid who is worried about the monster under the bed. The prefrontal cortex is the, the mom or dad that comes into the room and says, hey, let's talk about this. Let's look under the bed. There's nothing here. It's all good. So we really need to have that top-down control. And so then to your question of how do we preferentially activate the prefrontal cortex? How do we preferentially calm down the amygdala? Well, there are several ways that we can do this. I would say my favorite way of doing this is getting enough sleep. And why do I say this? Well, after one night of sleep deprivation, that all-nighter, or if you're in medical training, just an average night, um, we see that the amygdala is increase in its activation, up to 60% higher activation when people are shown a threatful Im or threatful, uh, threatening image. At the same time, we see that the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is weaker after that one night of poor sleep. So what we want to do is actually have the exact opposite happen. We want the amygdala to be more quieted down. We want that connection to be stronger. So I tell people that if you're having issues with emotional reactivity, if you feel you're having challenges in your relationships with your friends, family, loved ones, or you're just having trouble maybe with your boss and seeing eye to eye, then getting that one night of good sleep is going to make it easier for you to relate to that other person, less likely for you to behave in an emotionally reactive way. So again, sleep, wonderful way to activate the prefrontal cortex and calm down the amygdala. There are obviously a lot of other things we can do. So we talked about a little bit exercise. Why exercise is important isn't just because it's good for your heart health, isn't just because people who exercise tend to live longer, tend to have lower rates of dementia. That's all wonderful. But as we talk about in the book Brainwash, exercise activates the prefrontal cortex, and it does this in an acute fashion, meaning after people exercise, both children and adults, you see improvements in what are called executive functions, which are very much a reflection of the prefrontal cortex. It seems like one of the ways this happens is that the body actually sends more blood to the front of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, after you exercise. The other thing that is so important about exercise as it relates to this balance between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is that exercise increases levels of what is called BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps the brain to be more plastic, to kind of strengthen neuron connections between the parts of the brains that are activated. So think about this. If you're exercising and you're preferentially activating the prefrontal cortex neurons, 
then you're also adding in this BDNF, which is going to solidify those activation patterns. This is a wonderful one-two punch to get you back on the part of your brain that is going to help you to make better decisions. Now, there, there are a lot of other things that we can talk about. I'll mention one more thing here, which I think is very important, which is meditation. So we talked about meditation a bit. Why is it so important to this balance? Well, again, what we see is that meditation appears to preferentially calm down the amygdala, that impulsive reactive part of the brain, and preferentially activate the prefrontal cortex, which enables you to be more measured in your decisions, which enables you to feel compassion, which enables you to feel cognitive empathy, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And you know, there's this fascinating study that we just presented the other day um, at a conference where they looked at how does this happen? How is it that meditation induces these changes in the brain? And it seems like it comes down to a strengthening of the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, which is really what we're trying to do here. We're trying to increase connection, connectivity between these two parts of the brain. It is when that connection is severed, as we sleep, see, for example, in sleep deficit, that our decisions become more impulsive, that our emotional reactivity goes off the charts, that we're more likely to, for example, eat junk food than make a better decision, for example, to, in one study, pick between junk food and uh, a piece of clothing, in this case, a hat. People who didn't get enough sleep were far more likely to choose the junk food over this hat versus people who got enough sleep who were more likely to choose the hat over the junk food. So take home message here is that when we are exercising, when we are meditating, when we are getting enough sleep, we are voting to activate the prefrontal cortex over the amygdala. And when we do this, this translates into better decisions, more emotional control, and in the long run, a whole lot better outcomes when it comes to having a healthy and, I should say, mental health balance in our lives. Not eat that whole pizza pie. Exactly. <laughs> Can you talk, in your book, you, in, in Brainwash, you talk about blue light. Talk about the problems with being exposed to the blue light coming off the digital devices at 455 nanometers. Sure. There's been a lot of conversation in the last few years about blue light exposure and specifically blue light as it relates to our electronic devices and keeping us from getting good sleep. Um, I want to say that like everything, this is a nuanced subject. So I want to caution people not to believe that blue light is inherently bad. And I'll explain that in a minute. What we do know is that when we're exposed to blue light in the last few hours of the day, for example, in one study by looking at an e-reader, one of these you know, books that are digital that you can look at on a screen, that it is associated with worse quality of sleep. And researchers have been looking at how does this blue light actually affect our sleep? One of the ways it appears to do this is that it blocks the production of melatonin. Melatonin being what is commonly referred to as a sleep hormone that helps us to kind of, as Matthew Walker would say, start the race. Um, to getting good sleep. It tells the body now is the time to begin to shut down, begin to prepare for good sleep. So what we recommend in the book is that people should try to limit exposure to screens in general in the hours before bed. But the key here seems to be lowering your blue light exposure in the hours before bed. So if you, like me sometimes, have to do some computer work in say eight o'clock and there's really no way around it, or let's say um, you really want to watch a movie with your family, then 
if it's in the computer context, there are ways to put on what's called night mode or their equivalent names for other types of operating systems that limit the amount of blue light coming through your screen. But you can also buy blue light blocking glasses, which help to, again, eliminate the blue light that you're taking in, in the hours before bed. Now, what about the other side of this? I said that blue light is not always bad. And the reason for this is what is happening with blue light later on in the day is it's telling your body, hey, this is the time to be active because blue light tells the brain the day is beginning, is the time to wake up and be more productive. So you can imagine we actually want more blue light exposure early on in the day, which tells the body, shut down melatonin production, let's get ready to um, expend some energy. Let's get ready to be as productive as we can. And the best way to do this is to get natural light exposure in the hour or so after you wake up. You can even get this when it's a bit cloudy out. And the goal would be to go outside to allow that natural sunlight to shine in through your eyes, not with sunglasses on, but it doesn't mean look at the sun. What it means is get outside and allow that blue light and the natural light spectrum to come in and help tell your body, let's get this day going. Take home message here for your listeners is, in the two or so hours before bed, do everything you can to limit blue light exposure. That might mean limiting all screens. That's probably a good idea. If you, for one reason or another, feel the need to use a screen, that's the time to engage night mode on your phone, on your computer, or the equivalent of night mode. Or, or in addition, put on blue light blocking glasses, which are really cheap, you can find them on Amazon, to help lower the amount of blue light exposure you're getting in those hours before bed. In, your, in Brainwash, you talk about the limbic system and pleasure. If you could expand on that. Sure. Um, there is a lot of conversation about how dopamine is related to pleasure, how the limbic system is involved with this. And let's uh, go into that in a little bit of detail. So first of all, what is the limbic system? The limbic system is a part of the brain that is associated with the experience of reward. Um, it's, it's hard to ensure that we are describing the limbic system in the correct fashion because it's a little bit unclear where the limbic system ends and begins. But as it relates to the conversation we have in the book, we try to talk about a couple of key regions, one of which is the amygdala, which we've described previously. Another part of the brain that is quite involved with this is the hypothalamus, also the hippocampus and also the nucleus accumbens, which is part of the, they're all kind of part of the reward system. I wanna caution people that scientists are no longer feeling that dopamine leads to pleasure as much. It is not as though the reward system is set up to bring us pleasure. Actually, what turns out to be the case is that this whole reward mechanism appears to be present in order to teach us what is worth pursuing and what is worth staying away from. So it's actually a learning system that engages with reward in order to solidify these circuits, these habits in our brain, so we know what is a reasonable action to participate in versus what we need to uh, look out for. Let's put that into context. What is it that is actually happening when we experience a reward? What seems to be the case is that, let's say the first time you eat a candy bar, um, your body won't necessarily know what a candy bar is, and therefore not much is happening before you take that bite. When you take that bite, a boost of dopamine is going to come out. Now, your brain creates what is called, um, well, I should say, it, it looks at 
the difference between the dopamine that was produced before you had that chocolate bar and the dopamine that was produced after you had that chocolate bar. And that tells us about what is called a prediction error. This is a, an, a mechanism that tells me how much better was this than what I thought it was going to be. And if the answer to that question is it's a lot better, your brain is set up to remember that. So it's going to engage the hippocampus to tether that experience to a memory so that next time you see a chocolate bar, you think, wow, that was a lot better than what I thought it was, which will make you then want to move towards that chocolate bar and eat it again. The whole pleasure thing, I think, has been a challenging conversation because it's really easy to say something like, oh, social media is so pleasurable and that's why we keep engaging with it. But I think if anyone is honest about this, it's not that we get that much pleasure out of checking our email or checking social media or potentially even watching TV. Uh, in fact, the most prevalent emotion that people experience when they watch TV is kind of a baseline level of a bit of depression. So it's not that these are really pleasurable experiences. What seems to be the case instead is that we have set up these habit loops whereby we continue to engage in these behaviors because it's a, a powerful dopamine burst when we open our email, when we open social media. These are things that are set up to activate this reward prediction mechanism because they're only occasionally really good and sometimes they're very bad. And when the brain is exposed to things that are variable, what's called a, a variable ratio schedule, like what you see in a slot machine, it has a tendency to want to continue engaging in these behaviors. But again, it's not about feeling all of this pleasure. Instead, it's about the brain saying, this has been, uh, this is a behavior that has strongly activated this reward system. And so I'm gonna continue to do it because now it's a habit. And now it's something I'm not really even conscious of. It's just something that I do. That was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of answer for this. But what I'd want people to understand is, it's not really all about this pleasure thing. What it's about is prediction errors, and when things are activating the brain in a certain way, it makes it more likely for us to continue to do them, and that makes it hard for us to break free of these behaviors. But when we understand a little bit more how habits are formed and how this reward prediction error occurs, then we're able to start making our own habits that aren't dictated by whatever the social media company, whatever the uh, junk food company wants us to do. In your book, you talk about acute stress and chronic stress. If, can you explain the difference and is either one of them beneficial to us? Yes, uh, this is a very good question because as we keep saying, um, it's easy to just boil everything down to good and bad. Now, what happens when we are exposed to acute stress? So coming back to this analogy I was using with, um, let's say a saber-toothed cat or somebody threatening your tribe, your brain is going to activate the amygdala. Well, let's say you see that scary grizzly bear or whatever that goes through your eyes. It goes through the relay station of the brain called the thalamus. It activates the amygdala. The amygdala tells your body through the HPA axis and through the sympathetic nervous system, produce cortisol, produce norepinephrine, produce epinephrine. That gets your body ready to respond to the threat. It also seems to sharpen your thinking. So you become more focused on whatever it is that you need to do. So if you imagine seeing a grizzly bear, if a grizzly bear walked into your office right now, you're not going to be worried about getting your taxes done. You're not gonna be worried about answering your emails. Your brain will be singularly focused on escaping from the grizzly bear, which is good. But what happens is we have basically an inverted U-shaped curve, right, like this. So you start here, your brain gets really focused up here. 
But when that stress continues on, it drops off. And the brain, over time, when exposed to these acute stressors, transitions to chronic stress. So when you have high levels of cortisol over time, high levels of norepinephrine over time, high levels of dopamine over time, this actually damages your brain and leads to, unfortunately, preferential damage of the prefrontal cortex and preferential activation and growth in the amygdala. So you now are going to be more likely to activate that fight or flight response system. It's a feed forward mechanism. And also now your brain's ability to make good choices is thrown off because you've fallen off the top of that curve and now you're making poor choices. You're deactivating the prefrontal cortex. So again, acute stress in many cases can be a good thing because it gets us more focused. It activates the body so we can respond to a threat. The problem is that as acute stress goes on for days, for weeks, for months, basically as we start engaging with the modern world as it's set up, it transitions into chronic stress. And chronic stress is linked to all manner of physiological dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction through insulin regulation problems, cardiovascular dysfunction through endothelial damage. And as it relates to the brain, chronic stress is also associated with making poor decisions and again, deactivating that prefrontal cortex. So it is really a problem we need to look at. Before we finish, you and, and your dad together came up with this term, disconnection syndrome. If you could explain that, uh, I think it's brilliant. And if you could explain that. Well, I appreciate that. Yes, we, we kind of described this, this issue called disconnection syndrome. Now, what we mean by that is at an anatomical level that we are disconnected from the prefrontal cortex. As we've been talking about through the course of this interview, that is a big problem because the prefrontal cortex enables us to make good choices. But what are the manifestations of this disconnection syndrome in our society? Well, what we see is that we are disconnected from our genome. We are struggling to enable our genes to provide health. We are disconnected from our physical health. This is why more than half of Americans are experiencing chronic diseases that are largely preventable through lifestyle interventions. This is why we're disconnected from each other. So as I said before, the prefrontal cortex grants us cognitive empathy, the ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. They grant us compassion, which is the ability to act in a positive and helpful way towards other people. So of course, as you can imagine, when we're lacking these things, this connection to the prefrontal cortex, it makes it really hard to have good relationships with other people. And at the largest level, we see that disconnection syndrome is manifested with a disconnection from our environment, from the planet as a whole. One of the major areas we talk about in the book is how we've lost our connection with nature. And the reason that this matters is that science has shown nature actually improves our decision-making, activates the prefrontal cortex, but it also helps us to feel empathy for each other and for the environment. So we are disconnected again from these two parts of the brain, these prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, their connection has broken down, which leads to all of these manifestations that damage our health, damage our relationships, damage our mental health, and damage our interaction with the world at large. After reading, after reading your book, uh, I asked the 10 of my patients, how do they feel after looking at a digital device for a while? And the most common answer was empty. So in, in summarize, to summarize, how can people, and I know you spoke about it during the interview, if you could just summarize for them, what are the things they could do 
in addition to reading this great book, uh, to, to start feeling better about things. Okay. Well, as I said before, the first step is awareness. And I think that you asked your patients about how they feel with their digital interactions and they responded with emptiness. But even that is an amazing first step because it grants insight into maybe something that we're doing that we don't want to be doing. So we've, we've got to create this understanding of the gap between who we want to be and who we actually are that will enable us to make these positive changes. Now, as I said before, probably the quickest way to start feeling better is to be giving yourself adequate sleep because that is going to translate into better choices, less emotional reactivity, and in addition, a much better overall health as it's associated with all of these positive health outcomes. So getting good sleep. Now, a lot of people want to know, how can I get, uh, develop a better relationship with my digital technology? We outline a lot of this in the book. I think the test of time, as I described before, is a wonderful first step. But there are so many other things that you can do. And something that I found incredibly beneficial is just have more physical separation from your phone. It is so easy when your phone is near you to pick it up and scroll through your social media and scroll through your email and just lose yourself. So I would say very important that you try to do what you can to separate yourself in these moments where you don't want to be distracted. A really key moment to do this is at the end of the day. So if you're trying to make a little bit of more space for yourself, trying to detox a bit from digital technology, the best time to do this is at night. Take your phone and leave it outside of your bedroom. You can get a basic alarm clock. The world isn't going to end because you don't check your email immediately before you go to sleep and immediately after you wake up. But we know that the vast majority of American adults reach for their phones in the first 15 minutes after waking up. It's about 80%. And we know that number goes up even higher in adolescence. So we've got to start making a little space because when we make that space, we'll get more insight into how addictive these devices really are. Another thing that people can do is to start getting a feel for how much time they're actually spending on their phones, how much time they're actually spending on their computers. Getting a screen time report is a wonderful way to do this because then you have a metric that you can track. So let's try to put all this into context. If you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, these are all wonderful things that I want to do. I would really love to reclaim some autonomy over my digital devices. I would really love to start making better decisions. I would really love to start improving my mental health. We have all of this stuff in the book, but if you want to start making positive changes right now, my recommendation is that you start applying the test of time to your digital interactions. Make them time-restricted, intentional, mindful, and enriching, and start getting the adequate sleep window seven to eight hours a night because these two things, when combined, are going to grant you insight into all of the other things that we talk about in the book and a lot of which you already know, which is eating a diet with less sugar in it, exercising occasionally, getting out into nature, spending more time with the people you care about, meditating. Again, you kind of already know this stuff, but the key is implementing, is putting this into practice. So we need to just open the door a tiny bit so we let in that light and we start to see what our lives could look like once we start making better decisions. And that's really where I'd recommend people start. I want to thank Dr. Austin Perlmutter for joining us today. I want to ask you if people out there want to get your book or want to find out more about you or your dad, where can they go? Well, the book is sold 
basically all the traditional bookstores as well as the digital bookstores, Amazon.com. The best way to get a hold of us is to go to brainwashbook.com. And that's where you can find out more about the book, more about us, and also get caught up with the blogs that we're writing about the subject, find out what other interviews we're doing, um, and just learn more about these subjects if they're of interest to you. Thank you so much, Austin. Thank you for having me.